Thank you. Look at all of these people. There's a huge crowd in here this morning. Wow. All right. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. Big crowd today. Welcome to one and all. Um, before I proceed any further, uh, Mom Paul Brackman, you're going to have another baby, right? Yes? Wonderful. Congratulations. Boy or girl? Oh, you're playing. What's that? One of those. One of those. Or both? No, 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 no it's only going to be. All right. Ultrasound says. Congratulations. Well done. We're very, very happy for you. When's the baby going to arrive? September 24th. September, September birthdays. Most excellent September birthdays. Congratulations. Is that great? Almost your birthday? Wonderful. Hello to everybody this morning. Hello to everybody out there who's been watching us and following us and joining us. Folks from four or five different states that I'm aware of. So good morning to you. We love you all. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, this morning, first of all, before we go to our global prayer guide from Voice of the Martyrs and a prayer for the folks in that nation and ours and for the proclamation of scriptural truth this morning. We're starting first, uh, third John, John's third letter this morning, by the way. I'm going to refresh your mind with Psalm 46, which we will return to on Tuesday night, the psalm that we're studying on Tuesday night. I give you the inspired words of the Lord from the Old Testament. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though all of the mountains should slip into the very heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, therefore she will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raises his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come and behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations upon the earth. He makes wars to cease to the very ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the shields or chariots with fire. Cease your striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The words of the Lord. Now for our uh, prayer guide. Kenya is the nation that I bring to your attention this morning. So please um, be aware of brothers and sisters in Christ who are in times of distress or trouble. Uh, fighting for the faith in the African nation of Kenya. According to the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, they consider Kenya to be a hostile nation. The country of Kenya is, oddly enough, predominantly Christian, but several tribal groups in the north of the country remain largely unreached, and much of the coastal region is predominantly Muslim. Additionally, in the region known as Greater Somalia in northeastern Kenya, 90% of the population is ethnically Somali and therefore fervently Muslim. In these areas, Christian missionaries from other parts of Kenya and converts from Islam are often attacked and killed, hence the designation hostile. The Kenyan constitution, interestingly enough, grants every citizen freedom of religion, but lo local governments in resistant areas are led by Muslim officials who do very little to protect the rights of believers. Most Kenyans are Christian, but the Muslim population is growing. Islamic extremists are most active in the north and east, and their activities extend to Nairobi in the south. In the coastal areas, community members and local governments also persecute Christians. Christians cannot openly discuss their faith in areas with a Somali majority, 
or areas near the northern border without risking the loss of family, livelihood, or community. There is a significant threat of violence against Christian converts in these Somali areas. In eastern Kenya, al-Shabaab terrorizes Christians, bombing churches, killing believers. In Muslim-majority areas along the coast, Christians are socially rejected. Bibles are available, thank God, but they are expensive and they are not always available in every dialect. Voice of the Martyrs, of course, supports the widows of Christian men or Christian workers killed in attacks. Our Bible distribution efforts focus on providing Bibles in particular to children and those who speak minority dialects in the country. So please, uh, today and in the week, days, weeks to come, please remember your brothers and sisters in Christ from the African nation of Kenya. And as far as Christian persecution on the home front is concerned, there's a little bit of good news this week. Uh, Brother John MacArthur and Grace Community Church won something of a victory this week. Surprising, a judge from a superior court in California actually um, said that they are not to be molested by the state or local government. They are free to worship more or less as they see fit. However, there is going to be uh, something of an additional court hearing, I believe, on or about September 4th. So um, pray for that. Uh, Grace Community Church, their stand has inspired some other folks in California to rightfully take a stand for what is right. So uh, pray for, for all of those folks and for their stand. And we support them, of course, and in any way that we possibly can. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, you who are the one, only true living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you who are truth and the source of all truth, you who are in the end absolute and ultimate reality, the God who in the end cannot and will not be ignored or denied. Thank you for making us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making and saving us to be part of your plan for your universe, for your creation, and the one which is to come. Thank you for saving us in spite of ourselves. Thank you for saving us from our self-worship and from our sin. Forgive us of our sins, our faults, and our failures on a daily basis. Inspire us, as the Apostle John says in his first letter, verse 9, to take our sins to you, for you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us by the work of the Son from all unrighteousness. Fill us with your Spirit and with the truth of your Word to translate the truth of your Word into action in our life. We pray for all of the members of our church, those who are friends of this church, their illnesses, their sickness, their diseases. We lay them before the feet of your throne for you to work your wonderful will in and through their life and to fulfill your plan for their lives, those who believe in you, who have placed body and soul in your hands, and your perfect will shall be done. We pray for their healing, we pray for their strength, we pray for their courage, and for the well-being and heart and mind of their family members, their friends, all who will be surrounding them in times of illness or treatment, I pray for certain situations and circumstances with our folks that we are not aware of, that are private needs and private concerns. We lay those at your feet. See to these matters, of course, as you see fit. Draw each and every single solitary one of us closer to you by whatever situations and circumstances in this life that you place over us or in our way to take us through for your honor and glory, pruning us and preparing us and cleaning us up for the world to come, for the kingdom consummated when the great king, the Son, returns. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Kenya. We pray that religious freedom and liberty will come to that land and that it will be protected in that land. We pray for the distribution of the sacred word of God into the hands of believers and folks who are finding difficulty receiving a copy of your word. Bless the voice of the martyrs and all that they set their hand to in helping these believers in Kenya and all Christian believers under distress or persecution or dis duress in this world. Help us to be faithful, to meet their needs and to help them, which is part and parcel of the message of this third letter of John that we're entering into today. Help us to be dutiful and to do our duty to these folks and by these folks. 
We pray for Brother John MacArthur and Grace Community Church, for Jenna Ellison, for Mr. LaMandry, who are representing them and the firms they represent. Bless them in their efforts to protect the freedom and liberty bequeathed to us by our founding generation and that 1.8 million Americans over the past two centuries have given their lives to defend and protect. Help us to do our duty by our Christian brothers and sisters here in this nation. We pray for this nation and for its repentance and for its turning to you. And we pray for our country during its very dark time of need, at perhaps one of its most critical turning points in all of history. And we pray for the true church of Jesus Christ in this country to rise up and to be the church and to be brave and courageous, proclaim the truth and die for it if necessary, and to be true salt and light in this nation and in this world. Hear our imperfect fumbling prayers, O sovereign God, and may your perfect will be done. Open the hearts and minds of everyone listening here and who will be listening in the hours and the days and the weeks to come. Listening to this message, the proclamation of your truth, inspired truth, is given to our brother John so long ago, which is just as relevant and applicable to believers in this age and every age until the great King returns. Help us to receive the truth of this word and apply it to our life and live our life by this truth. So as King David would write, May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our Rock, and our Redeemer. You who are our one and only hope, and you who are more than hope enough. In Jesus' holy and sacred name we pray. Amen. As is our custom, and forgive me for forgetting it for so long, we will remember it today as we did last week. Would you all please stand to honor the reading? of sacred scripture, the reading of the word of the Lord. We begin today John's third letter. Today, if I could give a title to the message, um, today's passage will be, as we begin the letter, of course, John's third letter. Third John, verses 1 to 4, introduction and opening greeting or exordium. I'll tell you what that word means shortly. Third John, verses 1 to 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, or in the truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. These are not only the words of John, these are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Welcome to the lovely little letter of 3 John. I hope by the time we finish it next week or the week after, you will agree that it is a wonderful little letter. A little letter in its length, but big in its importance, in its scope in its marching orders for the church and in its, in its content. Third John, you probably already know this, is the shortest book in the New Testament. And for that matter, it's the shortest book in the whole Bible. Uh, for this reason, unfortunately, Third John is often ignored, and that's tragic. So we're going to give it the attention, the importance that is its due. The letter contains only about 219 words in the original Greek text. Um, probably, unless you have a study Bible with extensive notes, this letter covers one single page in your Bible, in the New Testament. Um, often, 2nd and 3rd John, his 2nd and 3rd letters, are often described as twin epistles or twin letters, but actually I think they could probably more accurately be described as sister letters or brother letters, sibling letters, rather than being um, identified as being identical letters or identical epistles. There are differences in these two letters, as well as uh, some similarities between the two. And remember, again, small letter, yet it is inspired scripture. These aren't merely the words of elderly John in Ephesus at the turn of the first to the second century A.D. He is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Never forget the doctrine of divine inspiration. So these are the words of the Lord by way of our elder brother to the church, to Christians, the world over, in all ages until Christ's return. So we should give this letter the attention that it's due. Uh, draw your attention, you folks, to, uh, to you, those of you who have the English Standard Version Study Bible. I know many of you do. I like to use it in uh, Tuesday night Bible study and on occasion quote from it on Sunday mornings to um, encourage you to make use of what is most certainly one of the best study Bibles available today. There's a few, they have some wonderful introductions to the books of the Bible in that ESV study Bible. So if those of you who have it, if you take a look, there's just two short points from the introduction that I'd like to draw to your attention. The overall theme in the ESV study Bible introduction, the overall theme to this letter is steadfast in opposition. Be steadfast in opposition. That's one of the main themes, if not the main theme of the letter. Arguably, there are others, and of course we will um, unpack those themes or sub-themes. But one of the main themes is be steadfast in opposition. And the opposition that uh, John is speaking about is not necessarily opposition from unbelievers who are outside the church. He's speaking about opposition from people who are within the church with this character by the name of Diotrephes that John is going to be dealing with. A uh, sub-theme of the letter is, and this is very, very important, I think it's actually a major theme of the letter, is support for Christian workers. Arguably, we could say support for Christian missionaries. This is what he's speaking about to Gaius and to Gaius Church. This is a very important theme of the letter. I think you could particularly focus on uh, Christian workers, which we would, of course, readily identify as missionaries. But I think you could arguably add any type of Christian ministry, any type of Christian worker. But again, in particular, those that are itinerant or those that are traveling, Christian workers preaching and teaching the gospel. Another theme, of course, is church discipline. What are we going to do with this troublemaker, Diotrephes, and the problems that he's causing in the church? And, of course, a, a very important theme is, and we will touch upon that today, which is the integrity of faith is proven by actions. The integrity of a person's faith is proven by their actions. I quote you Colin Cruz from an excellent commentary that he has written. This letter is of significant interest because of the insight it provides concerning the life intentions of a very early Christian community. Allow me to add, hence an example to us. This letter written by the elder John to his friend Gaius has essentially three functions. One, to reinforce Gaius' commitment to the noble work of providing hospitality to traveling missionaries, to itinerant Christian workers, something that he was already doing and something that John, of course, is encouraging him to continue to do always. This is verses 5 to 8. Two, to draw attention to the intolerable, intolerable behavior of this man named Diotrephes and to foreshadow the steps that John intends to take in response to Diotrephes. This is verses 9 and 10. And, of course, to commend Demetrius, the bearer of the letter, for his Christian behavior and his service to the church. Here are some of the similarities between 2nd and 3rd John. And these are some similarities, by the way, which give us certain evidences and proofs that these three letters were all written by the same man, by the same apostle, the Apostle John. Both 2nd and 3rd John in particular are very, very similar in their style and their structure. They give you a wonderful little window into the past. They are a typical example of a formal, very polite, Greco-Roman personal letter. And both of these letters, as they are so short, would not only fit on a single page of your Bible, if written in a fine hand, they could be easily written on a single sheet of legal notepad paper that we use today. Now, this letter could also very, very easily be written on a single sheet of about a 10 by 8 piece of papyrus paper, which was very typical of the time period. Many such letters and documents are found on a piece of papyrus about that size. The recipients, another similarity, the recipient, the receiver or recipient of the letter 
is a person or are persons whom John loves in truth, or as he says, loves in the truth. The recipient, receiver of the letter, are those whom um, John describes himself as serving over them as the elder. The recipients are a source of great rejoicing to John. The recipients are people, a person or people, who walk in the truth of he who is truth, the source of all truth. The elder, John, has received very good reports concerning the person or persons that he is writing to, and both letters contain a word of warning. Also, John the elder desires to see the people, the person, the persons that he is writing to. He expresses the desire that he wants to see them personally face to face. And uh, another similarity, last of all, is there are other Christian believers who wish to send their well wishes, their blessings, and their greetings to the people that John is writing to by way of John through, through his letter. Now, Third John, again, is a personal letter. It's centered around, if you notice, three people. There's three people that this little letter focuses around. Gaius, the recipient of the letter, or the initial recipient of the letter. Diotrephes, the troublemaker, that Gaius and John are going to have to deal with. And Demetrius, the letter's bearer. Now, this letter, again, for those of you who like history, I may be the only one in the room who does. I believe there's a few others of you that do. I know there's some folks out there who do. It's a very, very fine example of what is called first century epistolatory writing. What's epistolatory writing? Letter writing. Wonderful example. The first century Greco-Roman letter writing. Even secular historians like to examine these little books of the New Testament and hold them up as, as wonderful letters, wonderful examples of, of epistolatory writing or literature from that time period. It's a great little window into the past as to what's going on with our brothers and sisters in the first real wave of Christianity spreading throughout the known world, the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire at that time. John gives a typical, very typical greeting of the time period. And I know some of you folks are looking at this letter and saying, well, this just kind of looks like a letter that I would write today or the folks write today. That's right, good eye. We are Western culture based upon Western civilization, at least for the time being, right? So there are some things that do not change. Yes, in some ways, a polite, formal letter or address, some of its components, its style, its structure, it hasn't changed a lot from the Greco-Roman style 2,000 years ago. First of all, what does he do? Uh, well, he identifies himself. There's an identification of the letter's author, identification of the recipient, the receiver of the letter. Verse 1, uh, number 2, there's a blessing, well wishes, good wishes, uh, upon the receiver, the recipient of the letter, verse 1 as well. Number three, a word of praise or encouragement, part of what is called an exordium for the recipient of the letter. This is verses 3 and 4. And you may not think, well, this is just a greeting. Let's just move on. Oh, no, 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 no. Not so fast. Hold your horses. Put on the brakes. And let's look at this greeting, which we often barrel right over, because there are some very important things for the church at that time and at this time. Some of our marching orders for the church are in this greeting. Not only as individual believers in our conduct and behavior, but as the church, local and universal. The elder to the beloved guys whom I love in truth. So this letter begins very much the same as 2 John. The apostle simply identifies himself as the elder. Now why is he doing that? Why doesn't he just simply say John? Well, let me refresh you from the second letter. We believe this letter may be written in a type of code or parts of it. In John identifying himself in a way that Christians would know that this is the Apostle John who is writing to them, but not specifically giving his name or perhaps some other details as to where the letter is going, how it will be disseminated, and the recipients of the letter. One of the reasons for this type of code may be security. If this falls into the wrong hands... This will keep these folks safe. And uh, there are some theologians who believe that not the entire letter, but I believe I may have mentioned this before, but there are some passages in the book of the Revelation which John may very well have written in this type of security code because Christian persecution was rearing its ugly head at the time that he wrote uh, that letter and this letter and will come in an ugly way shortly uh, thereafter. 
So even if code, probably everybody knew who this was. Uh, at this time, when uh, John was probably known all throughout the provinces of Galatia and Asia and Asia Minor, all of those provinces of the Roman Empire, which are now the modern nation of Turkey, they probably all knew that the man who called himself the elder was John, was John the Apostle. So they would have known who this was. John, of course, writes with apostolic authority. John, at this time, held unquestionable position of leadership over the church, all churches, local and universal. <clears throat> he held an unquestionable position of leadership in theological, doctrinal, and moral matters, as he is under the, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he is keenly aware of that. And I believe the church at this time is keenly aware of that. God is speaking to them through this man, his faithful apostle. It's important to remember, and probably another reason why he's referred to as the elder, is if you remember, he is the last living apostle at the time that this letter was written. So in more ways than one, he is the elder. He is the last living of the original disciples of Jesus and the last living apostle. So he is very much a treasure to the ancient Christian church at this time until his passing. Probably another reason why all he has to say is, this is the elder writing to you. And everybody knows, except the outsiders, who that would be. Now, let's set that aside for a moment. Even in the culture of the day, in the culture of the ancient Mediterranean world, when John is writing this letter, he's probably over 90 years old. That is a very ripe old age for 2020. Now imagine what a man in his 90s would be for the generation of the late first century AD. I mean, he is actually something of an anomaly, even something almost miraculous to those folks. And even the unbelievers probably would have held him almost as someone to be revered because of his advanced age and all of his adventures and his experience and the social standing that he had, even amongst those strange people, those Christians. So any man of such an advanced age of experience would hold some type of authority, social standing, and a person like John with genuine credentials in the life of the Christian church. He could rightly, therefore, identify himself in and out of the church as a ha presboteros, which is the word that he uses in the original Greek for the elder. And, of course, also remember that this could be a type of code, as I mentioned before. Now, John the Elder addresses this letter to who? The beloved Gaius. And this is the only person or the only time in John's letters that he writes to a specific individual and mentions them by name. So I know what you're asking. Well, now, wait a minute. If this is a security code that's being used here, why does he mention Gaius individually by his name? Well, the reason is this. Gaius who? Gaius who? There's a million and one men, believe me, scattered throughout the Roman Empire at this time whose name is Gaius, or their name begins in Gaius. Um, the Romans had what they called three names, and you, many of you and I have three names. I have three names, Scott, Allen, New. And, and the, the, um, mostly people had three names, may have been persons of a little rank or social standing or reputation, but the Romans had what they called a, pro, a, a pronomen, a nomen, and a cognomen. And Gaius is just probably this man's pronomen. Okay? Uh, to give you an example, one of the most famous Romans from history is who? Julius Caesar. And we usually only refer to him by his Nomen and Cognomen, Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar's full name is Gaius. How's that for an example? Gaius Julius Caesar is his full name. So um, Gaius really is an extremely common name, as I mentioned. He's what you and I would call a John Doe name. It's the same as if John would have written uh, to the beloved Bill, to the beloved Ed. To the beloved Joe. Okay, well, Bill, Ed, Joe, who? He doesn't specifically say who. So I'm going to have to um, let your curiosity go on a little bit further. Specifically, Gaius, who? We, do, we, don't, we don't know. Perhaps we're not meant to know. But I can tell you that you will meet Gaius one day, the Gaius, 
and you can ask him all the questions about this letter and about his life and about his church that you wish. Now, the name Gaius, we can look at this a little deeper. He may be mentioned in the Bible, but we're not sure. The name Gaius is found about four other places in the New Testament. But the interesting thing is, in each and every case that you find a man by the name of Gaius, the man bearing that name is actually associated with the Apostle Paul. In Acts, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 29, there is a man by the name of Gaius who is one of Paul's traveling companions. And this is probably the same Gaius that is mentioned as a traveling companion of Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He is called Gaius from Derby. In other words, Gaius from the city of Derby in the province of Asia, Asia Minor, uh, where Paul traveled and established a church in one of his missionary journeys. 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul mentions a man by the name of Gaius as one of the few persons that he actually personally baptized himself in the city of Corinth. And this may very well be the same Gaius that Paul mentions again in Romans 16.3. Romans 16.3 mentions a man by the name of Gaius who is his host in the city of Corinth. So you see there's at least two, perhaps three men all named Gaius, who are all friends or associates of Paul alone. So there are no indications, really, that any of these men named Gaius are the Gaius of the letter. But he writes, notice, to the beloved Gaius, to agapeto Gaius. Ring a bell? Agapeto. He is saying to the most beloved Gaius, my Christian brother who is loved with agape love, this is the Apostle John practicing what he's been preaching for two letters. He is putting his agape love into action for his Christian brother Gaius. To agape to, most loved Gaius. Gaius who is loved with agape love, the highest, noblest, truest form of love. We believe this love that in the hands of the inspired apostles in the New Testament, it means God-like love. Love that reflects the mirror and nature of God. God that love that I do not believe human beings can manufacture or be capable of on their own. It is a love that comes to those who are, as John would say, born of God. We are loved by God with agape love, and thereby He redeems His people. And when you receive the born of God life, you are gifted agape love, which you are to reciprocate back to God, and agape love with which you are to love your siblings, your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is agape love in action. This Gaius appears to be a person of note, doesn't he? He may, he may very well have been in John's circle of fellow believers. We do not know if he's the head of a house church. Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know if he holds any actual position as an elder or a deacon in the church. We, he may not have held any position. But he was probably a person of some sort of influence in his community and his church. Now John, notice he addresses Gaius as one whom I love in truth. Or your translation may say, one whom I love in the truth. He uses en aletia in the Greek. This is how he refers to Gaius in the original Greek. En aletia. Do you, do you know anybody named Aletha? Or Aletheia? Her name means truth. Or is derived from the word for truth in New Testament Koine Greek. En aletia. So you can translate this or interpret this two different ways. One, in the truth, or two, in truth, or love truly. So John's saying one of two things or both. Gaius is a man who is loved with agape love truly. Or Gaius is a man who is loved with agape love in or by way of the truth. Arguably, he may be saying both. But I happen to hang my hat with the uh, New Testament scholars and theologians who believe that probably the first translation is probably the better or more accurate in the truth. Now why is that? Here's the main reason. What is one of the main themes that runs through all of John's letters? John wishes for all believers to what? Walk in the truth. And Analathia in his other letters is often translated in the truth. I believe that's probably the correct or more accurate translation. John wishes for all believers to walk in the truth. So John is saying that his friend Gaius is loved with agape love as one who continues to walk in the truth. That means he is faithful to the truth concerning Jesus the Christ. Here's the first life application for the morning. As the late great Herman Cain would say, how's that coming along for you? 
If the Apostle John knew you and were writing you a personal letter, would he give you exactly the same greeting that he is giving Gaius? Yes, I can tell you in tremendous confidence that he would love you in agape love, but would he address you as someone who is living their life faithfully by walking in the truth of he who is the truth, the embodiment and personification of truth, and the source of all truth? How's that coming along for us? This man is faithful to the truth concerning Jesus the Christ. Dr. Danny Egan in his commentary writes, When John writes love in the truth, remember, love does not function as some disconnected emotion with no substance or content. Without truth, there's not much to love. Real love will always be in the truth. Love does not function as some disconnected emotion. Without truth, love will devolve into mere sentimentalism or something worse. For, love, for John, real love and truth must always go together hand in hand. They are absolutely necessary companions. They should go together. They should work together. John expresses love flowing not only from the heart, but from the head. A love which is rooted in him who is the truth and the true God. End quote, according to John. Verse 2. Beloved, I pray, or you who are loved with agape love, godlike love, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So in and after the opening of a typical Greco-Roman letter of the time period, there was also something called an exordium. Your eyes are glazing over. Stay with me. What in the world is an exordium? I've never even heard of that. Thank you for asking. An exordium, E-X-O-R-D-I-U-M, it's just a formal component of a letter at that time. And what an exordium is, um, it's when a writer establishes some sort of rapport or uh, relationship with the folks that he's writing to. It's a way to establish a warmer rapport or a warmer relationship with the folks that you're writing to. And as in this case, it can be reminding folks of a rapport and a relationship that you already have established, that you've already been enjoying. And this often is a prayer, perfect example. An exordium is often a prayer in behalf of the people that you're writing to. It could also be wishing someone well wishes, good wishes, as we would say, upon the letter's recipient. It can also be a, a compliment, and you find that here as well. Compliments on their character, compliments on their conduct, compliments on their achievements. And as you see, John perfectly follows that form in this letter. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. So John is telling Gaius precisely how he's praying for them. Life application here. You want to know how to pray for folks? Here it is. Here's a formula. If you don't know how else to pray... For other believers or believers that you may not be personally acquainted with, pray for them that in all respects they may prosper and be in good health. There you are. Life application. Now, <laughs> this verse has been taken by the health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel, and they have taken it right off the rails and right over the cliff. John's chief concern is not that this man live rich and high on the hog, wallowing in material wealth for the rest of his life, and that he experiences a life from cradle to grave in which he never experiences sickness ever a day in his life. That is not what this verse says. Is he genuinely concerned about his well-being, his material well-being, his basic needs? Yes, that is good and that is legitimate. That is what he is praying for. Is he praying for this man's general overall physical health and welfare and well-being? Yes, he is. Let's not take that any further. That's just simply what it is. Because there is something in this prayer that is far more important than both. And he tells you in the same breath that there is something of far greater value than material wealth or prosperity. And there is even something of far greater value than the health of your physical body. Read the whole verse, the whole prayer. 
that you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. He is saying more important than your material wealth and your body is the health and the welfare of your soul. I pray first and foremost that your soul is well and healthy and happy. And then let your material circumstances and your body follow along on the coattails of the health of your soul. That's what the man is saying. Good example to pray for other folks. Yes, pray that their basic needs are met. Yes, pray that their physical health is good. But first and foremost, pray that their soul prospers, that their soul is healthy and happy in Christ Jesus. Yes, and these are more than just good wishes, well wishes, as we write on a card without even thinking about it. This is a prayer for the believer's total well-being, the sum total of the person, in all respects and in all ways, but most important, just as your soul prospers. The word he uses for soul is a very important one in New Testament Greek. It's suke. And suke means the immaterial component or the immaterial part of a person's being, the real you, the core of your being, the immortal part of you, or the part of you that when you die one destination or another will enter eternity, the most important part or component of a person, the spiritual life, the spiritual reality of a person. This is most important, folks. The body follows the soul. The health of the soul to Christ and the inspired apostles is always of paramount importance. First the soul, and everything follows along the coattails of the soul. The body follows a soul. What do I mean by that? Here's a very important example. Human beings are basically made body and soul or spirit. An immaterial you and a material you. This is how your body will follow your soul. What does Jesus say happens to you, the born-of-God believer, when you die? Yes, that body does experience a real type of death, and that body must go into the ground. It is dead. But what does He say about the soul, the suke? You do not die at all. You have eternal life living in you right now, if you are a born-of-God believer, and that eternal life never dies, does not cease, does not change, absent from the body, present with the Lord. When your body dies, your soul experiences a change of location and geography and lives on forever. And at the end of human history as we know it, according to sacred scripture, at the return of Christ, the body is what? That dead body in the ground, which has returned to dust, is raised again to life and is reconnected with the soul, the suke, and is never divided, never split, ever again a whole human being forever for eternity in that way yes very much so the body follows the soul first see to the health and welfare of your soul then comes the rest and fight hard for the wealth the prosperity the health of the souls of those around you and then the rest will follow let's get our priorities right and the Apostle John gives us our priorities. Now, how does John know that Gaius is well in his soul? Well, the next verse explains. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth. That is, how you are walking in the truth. For I was very glad. Uh, your translation may say, for I rejoiced greatly. Or it may say, for I was overjoyed. They're all accurate. For I was very glad. Overjoyed. When brethren or brothers and sisters came and bore witness to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. So there's more than enough evidence given by those who actually know Gaius personally that he is well in his soul. Or as that wonderful old Christian hymn goes, it is well with my soul. It is well with Gaius' soul. He is soul healthy. Major takeaway from this letter, from the opening of this letter. Is your soul healthy? And how is the health of the souls of those around you in your personal sphere of influence? John has been given a good report concerning Gaius by those who know him. And so this good report on the health of Gaius' soul is a source of great joy for John. Life application here. How do we rejoice ourselves over the health 
of the souls of others. How's that coming along for us? How do we concern ourselves over the health and well-being of the souls of others? Do we experience being overjoyed when we hear of the health and well-being of the souls of our brothers and sisters around us? Personally and by association and extension? Do we really concern ourselves that much over the souls of others and other believers? Marching orders. We should follow John's example, right? For I was very glad, for I rejoiced greatly. Ekaren Leon in the original Greek, meaning great joy, overjoy. I was very glad. That's a little bit too weak of a translation. I was overjoyed. He's using very exuberant joyful language. This is a chief source of joy in this man's life. The health of other persons' souls. How's that coming along for us? He's overjoyed to hear that Gaius remains faithful to the truth. The truth of Christ, the truth about Christ, and the truth which is given us from Christ. And that he, Gaius, continues to walk in the truth, living his life in the truth. Colin Cruz, allow me to quote him again. He writes, John seems to be emphasizing here that Gaius' faithfulness, this is important, listen to this, he makes a great point. John seems to be emphasizing here that Gaius' faithfulness involves not only holding correct theology, correct doctrine. Does that ring a bell, deacons and elders? Your deacons and elders are studying a book about correct Bible doctrine and how important it is in the life of the church. His faithfulness involves not only holding correct theology, correct doctrine, which is right belief, but also persisting in correct action. If you are faithful in what you believe, it will affect the way you behave. Listen up, this is important. This is where this actually works out in our life. Where the rubber hits the road. You must translate these words into action in your life. The Christian life is never passive. It is active always. We must translate these words into action in our life. Your creed must become conduct. Your doctrine must become deeds. These words must become deeds. You must live it out. That is the correct and the only biblical definition of a correct Christian life lived wisely and well in this world on the way to the next world. Right? Correct theology and doctrine must persist in correct action. We must translate these words into action in our life. Gaius is faithful in what he believed, so that will inspire how he lives and motivate what he does. So therefore, yes, if he is faithful in what he believes, he will be faithful in how he lived. And there is very little faithfulness in people who call themselves Christians in this country today. Very little faithfulness. This must go here and here. And it must become action in your life. If you are faithful to what you believe, you will live a faithful life. You will not fall away. You will finish wisely and well. Very, very important. Oh, dear God, has the Holy Spirit been hammering me this week with what this man is saying here. You see, folks, in this simple little letter, just in this man's introduction, if you care to look for it, some of life's most important lessons are in this letter. In the very introduction of this letter, if you care to look for it. Gaius, well, he writes, Brethren came and bore witness. Brethren is Adelphoi in the Greek. The word for brother is Adelphos, and when you see Adelphoi in the Greek, it's in the plural. I'm not leaving you out, ladies. This probably means that John probably heard from some women as well. The word is, I think, accurately translated here as brethren, meaning siblings, male and female. These Christian travelers were probably both men and women. 
who gave John a good report about Gaius. Gaius is given to us as a model Christian believer. Do you see that? Any time and every time, even in a short greeting, that an inspired apostle holds up a Christian believer by name, by personal example, what does it say to you and I? It means this is a person that we are to emulate. This is a person that we are to copy. This is a person that we are to look up to. As Gaius was, so should you be. As Gaius lived his life, so should we live our lives. Be like Gaius. As Dr. Akron said, again, he makes a wonderful point. Doctrine indeed. Doctrine indeed. Gaius is really living out his faith. Gaius was commendable. Gaius was praiseworthy. And Gaius was consistent. The reason why I gave you that quote is because consistent. I love the word consistent. Gaius was faithful in what he believed, which made him a consistent believer in being faithful to what he believed, in being faithful and living it out, actually living it out in his life. There is very little consistency that I see in this generation amongst those who call themselves Christians in our country. Little faithfulness, little consistency. Be faithful to what you believe. Translate it into action in your life. And yes, you will be a praiseworthy and commendable believer, but you will be a consistent believer. Now, Jesus Christ our Lord, God the Son, is the only one that can truly pave the way and provide the way for you and I to enter eternity with God, our Redeemer, Creator. And yet, there are passages in the New Testament in which Jesus and the apostles say this, He or she who endures to the end will be saved. In some way, there is steadfastness and perseverance that is absolutely essential and required. Consistency, faithfulness is required. Let's not forget that. To walk in the truth is to conduct, to live one's life in the truth, according to the truth of he who is truth. Confession must become conduct. Inner belief must become outer practice. As I like to say, we live our lives from the inside out. Loyalty to Christ and the truth of Christ, the truth of Scripture, must characterize our lives as it characterized Gaius' life. Gaius lived his life in the truth he was given, probably given by the Apostle John himself. In all three of his letters, John speaks of joy being complete or filled up when believers walk in the truth. One must be faithful to the truth to have true and complete joy. Do you get it? That's what he's saying. That's what he's implying. You want filled up joy? You have to walk in the truth. You want your joy to be complete? You must be walking in the truth. In the end, there is no joy, no complete filled up joy found any other way than by walking in the truth of He who is the truth. Last verse for the day and for His opening. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. It's a beautiful thing to say. Beautiful thing. Beautiful ending to the opening greeting. And verse 4 here, do you see what it's doing? Verse 4 simply reinfor reinforces verse 3, doesn't it? You're just getting a reinforcement of verse 3 and verse 4. John finishes his opening greeting, his opening exhorting with this beautiful, wonderful statement. I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. So first of all, John tells us what? He's overjoyed at the state of Gaius' soul. Now he's telling us that he has no greater joy. You all know what the word for big or great or large in Koine Greek is? You guys use it all the time. Mega this, mega that. Right? Mega or megas, classical Greek, Koine Greek, means large, great, big. When John writes here, no greater joy, it's mezoteros karan in the original Greek. Karan being joy. Mezoteros is an interesting word. 
It's a word that means this, bigger than mega. Megas mega. Bigger than bigger. Greater than great. That's what the word means. He tells us that he is joy greater than mega joy. Or no greater joy. Or as we might say, joy to the nth degree. This is the joy that he has over what we would call his spiritual children. Those who are walking in the truth. More life application here, folks. How's that coming along for you? Do we have spiritual children? You should. Each and every one of us who has been a believer for some time should have people who are our siblings in Christ that we can look upon as our spiritual children. No, they do not have to be your biological children. They do not even have to be blood relatives. And they do not even have to be younger than you. But every believer should have someone that they can call their spiritual child or spiritual children. Someone that they brought to Christ. Someone that they brought to the born of God life in Christ. Someone that they discipled. Someone that they mentored in the faith. Bringing them to the new birth and seeing them beyond the new birth. And seeing them grow up from a baby in Christ to an adult in Christ in the faith. So how's that coming along for us? Do you have spiritual children? Now for those of you saying, oh yeah, yeah, my kids are saved. Well, how about getting some spiritual children that aren't related to you by blood. Keep going. We should all have spiritual children. And, not only that, but do we have this kind of joy? Mega, mega joy? Greater than mega joy over our spiritual children? Over the welfare and the health of the souls of those that we may refer to as our spiritual children? Children in the Greek is technon, and the plural here, John means believers who are his spiritual children as well as his Christian adelphoi, his Christian brothers and sisters. It's a very beautiful and tender thing he's saying. My children. I don't think he's wrong to be a bit possessive there. John means believers under his personal care, believers under his personal ministry, people who he is discipling. How's that coming along for us? Do you have people that you are being a spiritual leader and a mentor to? People that you are discipling? People that you're pouring eternal truth to? Personally, face to face? That you could call your spiritual child? Please work on that. We all must work on that. Okay? John means believers under his personal care, his ministry. People to whom he gave and taught the gospel to. People who may come to Christ under His ministry. People who receive the born of God life under His teaching and under His work. Hence, He has the right to call them my children, my spiritual children. And I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Again, what does walking in the truth mean? Living one's life faithful to the truth of Jesus, the inspired truth about Jesus, and the truth which comes from Jesus Himself. The truth of the person and work of Christ. True to inspired scripture. People who are truly, truly walking truly in the truth of the born of God life. In the truth of he who is truth. How's this coming along with us and our spiritual children? Let me give the last word of the day to British theologian John Stott who's now in the Father's house, and his nice summation of John's personal greeting. Did anybody get anything out of this greeting that you haven't gotten before? There is not a single solitary desultory sentence in this book from cover to cover. Don't ever just barrel over any of it. There's a lot of truth contained in all of it. Even the hello parts of the letters. Stott writes, John's point is clear, is it not? He experiences supreme joy when it is reported to him that those under his personal watch care are walking in the truth. To walk in the truth means to what? To know it, to believe it, and to live it. Whoever walks in the truth is an integrated believer. An integrated believer in whom there is no dichotomy, there is no contradiction at all 
between profession and practice. On the contrary, sacred scripture teaches us there is an exact correspondence between one's creed and one's conduct. They should be one and the same. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for our dear elder brother John and his hard-lived, hard-fought life for his Messiah, God the Son, and in his advanced age in Ephesus, giving us such wonderful truth from these letters and from the Revelation. Please, Lord, help us to acknowledge the truth that is in this simple little letter. But some of life's most important lessons are in these simple little letters. Some of the most important realities we will be confronted with that tell us how to live this life wisely and well and to finish it triumphant. Help us all to apply these words in our life. And for all of those watching and listening, I pray for them that they may, by the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word, be enabled to do the same. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For dismissal, wonderful hymn. Hymn number six in, in your hymnal.